Hello everyone, it's May 5th, 2020. This week we're down to the final three human lunar landers. Which one or ones should NASA select? Who can say, but we'll give our thoughts on the matter. We also got a little more on Crew Dragon. Things are heating up, so let's get going and lift off. To the tower. Welcome to episode 259 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. We're talking about. I didn't think of anything. Well, we can we can say goodbye to Administrator Beggs. So he he was the NASA administrator who came into office right after a uh, shuttle started flying. But unfortunately, he was he was only in office for I think like four years um, because he was charged with some sort of fraud he before he worked for nasa he worked for uh general dynamics i believe and so while he was in office uh, a federal agency charged him with misconduct of i I think it was some sort of like fraud or or embezzlement Mm -hmm. something like that and they charged him he was uh i think he was actually discharged from his office i don't know if he resigned I, i think he was discharged um they went through this long investigation and uh, you know, not litigation, I guess, but, you know, this, this whole prosecution thing. And in the end, he was actually acquitted. And the agency that was investigating him, like, apologized. And he, you know, went went back to work, basically. But he resigned from NASA after the Challenger disaster, I believe. He really did some cool stuff while he was there, right? I mean, he, he it sounds like his big things where he coincided with uh, Hubble. Mm-hmm. Also, I love the one little anecdote they talked about where one of the ways he was able to get uh, Reagan on board with, uh, you know, then Space Station mm-hmm. Freedom was by telling him you could see it with the naked eye, which is like... You know, <laughs> if if I was a uh, that is true somebody you know so like outside of space and I'm just like really I could you know I could be responsible for that or you know yeah. work towards that yeah I'm kind of I'm I'm down <laughs> <laughs> and of course Hubble you could see naked eye too but yeah it's funny how uh, presidents really love a flex that's mm-hmm. the way to get them on board <laughs> yep. Big news item is NASA has finally selected, well, has down-selected to uh, three of the human landing systems uh, for the Artemis program, which these are some pretty cool proposals. Now, these were submitted, what, late last year? So the original human landing system solicitation was released on October 25th of 2019, so last fall. Okay, yeah. And uh, the due date for the first five uh, offerers was last November. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I, I guess that means it was probably something that was premiered at uh, the IAC conference because that was like that very day, I believe, <laughs> on October 25th. <laughs> oh, now that right. I think about yeah. it. It was Lockheed's ascent stage was the premiere. Remember, we just saw that pinned yeah. on top of yeah. the, and we were just kind of like, what the heck is this? Yeah. And then it was, it was then right in the news while we were still like in the conference. <laughs> so the three landers that we do have are from uh, SpaceX, Dynetics, and what was? Uh, Blue Origin. Although Blue Origin. They've got big under... subcontractors. Yeah. So they call themselves the national team. I guess actually, before we even talk about it, like, does anyone have any favorites? Like, like just like anything that jumps out at you that you really like? Well, I, I like the fact that Draper is on the national team. Like, 
that that's the same as Draper Labs a la Apollo, right? Yeah. No, because right, this, this, the whole uh, teaming up was also mentioned at IEC while we were there. And uh, I just, yeah, yeah, Draper's got a lot of history, a lot of history. I think I kind of like the Dynetics proposal, just <gasps> I'm not sure why, but I do. Well, I guess we'll talk about it later. But obviously, I also think that these SpaceX proposal is very cool because they have the most ambitious or at least, you know, the biggest lander of them all and i just think that would be cool to see on the moon what what are you excited about dennis i I heard an excited gasp yeah because i was gonna say i like dynetics they're my favorite one too because yeah i mean they're not small by any means but like i feel like out of these three in terms of the popular kind of consciousness they are the kind of i, I don't know they're, they're they seem like an underdog to me at least on social media you know what i mean compared to spacex which has you know a very very devoted following and then Blue Origin plus these other huge companies is just, you know, they're the kind of big shots. And then Dynetics is kind of just like, like I said, they're not small, but at least, you know, you don't see people, I don't know, I don't see the Dynetics fandom so much on social mm-hmm. media. And so that's kind of why the fact that they did a really good proposal and uh, yeah, I don't know. For that reason, I kind of want to root for them. Plus their lander looks cool. It does too. look cool. Yeah. And that, and that's Sierra Nevada too, like, which is also a cool company. And they're, uh, yeah, they're the, uh, the cat, they're going to, kind of lead the development on the cabin i also yeah like as yeah i don't want to get i guess we don't want, don't want to talk too much about the vehicle yet but <laughs> i just love that it's got the kind of two sets of four engines on the two ends of the vehicle so what's happened is we had the kind of five original uh bidders so right so blue origin dynetics and spacex which kind of made it to this uh, round. That's kind of the big news item. And then uh, Boeing also put in their own uh, independent proposal, and Vivace also put in one as well. And those two didn't uh, make it to this uh, round of three. And so now, yeah, the plan at this point is that over the next 10 months, um, they're going to develop their designs because they've already had some time to kind of like re-adjust their proposals after They'd already been kind of down selected, and then all three of them kind of got approved. This all has only happened over the last few weeks, really. So, so now you know we've got renders, and then like we're really interested in getting more details about them. And I guess we do know a lot about at least one of them, or at least you know to an extent, Starship, right? <laughs> uh, or the lunar Starship. And so, but as far as um, Dynetics proposal in particular, all we really have, I think, is the render. And uh, for Blue Origin, you know, we got to see mockups in person but and we have some idea of you know we at least know it's going to be what be seven yeah be sevens for their descent element but um now hopefully things will get flushed out and then the final down select will be one or two so okay so mm-hmm. so it might be two i thought it was just going to be one but i was hoping for at least two yeah 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 totally I, i'm with you there too so that's you know and and i feel like in a sense like technically all three of these could make it to the moon right if if dynetics and blue origin get picked and then spacex just independently goes to the yeah. moon and then True. You know, it just would be part of the artemis program because <laughs> right yeah this is specifically yeah for artemis yeah because i believe that elon musk has said that he wants to you know go for the moon first sort of as a test run so i think that's something that they're going to do anyway he's got big plans for spacex independent of <laughs> of this yeah regardless of what nasa does yeah, so the uh, the awards that have been allocated, pretty interesting. So as far as the money goes, you know, um, the amount of money that has been given has been $579 million to Blue Origin, $253 million to Dynetics, and then $135 million to SpaceX. So that's a pretty big disparity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's how the bidding works. So the prices that they 
all bid uh, basically was just way above uh, NASA's budget. And so they had to basically uh, kind of give them a lower version, not give them as much as they were bidding for. Yeah. Yeah. There's some technical language about that. But my interpretation of what I'm reading is that, it's, you know, NASA's budget profile for the HLS base period performance did not support the award of a contract to all these offerers at the firm fixed prices they had proposed. So hmm. there was a significant shortfall between the HLS, HLS budget and then all three of their bids, if you add them up, there just wasn't enough money there. So I don't know if they shaved off a, a fixed percentage from all of them, or I mean, I feel like that would be the fairest thing to do. But but under a billion for, I mean, this yeah. is just development, but yeah. Uh, last week we had talked about how NASA evaluates. We were talking about specifically the Lunar Gateway. So this time we're talking about a lunar lander, um, and we're back to technical ratings, management ratings, and I think there was like one other criterion that's not in this evaluation. I can't remember what exactly we were oh, there discussing, is. but it's it's just that I think it's the price. Oh yeah, okay. And and everybody passed that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For. The technical rating, Blue Origin is acceptable. Dynetics is very good and SpaceX is acceptable. So Dynetics gets a very good rating. That's interesting. Um, although in a way I would almost, eh, okay, never mind. Yeah. I'll just, I was going to say that I would think that SpaceX might also be very good, but that's just because I expect that they eventually will land something on the moon, regardless of whether NASA, you know, mm-hmm. will give them the opportunity to do it or not. I'm guessing maybe this is technical rating specific to a 2024, you know, Artemis mm-hmm. landing. So yeah. in, in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident SpaceX will get to the moon with Starship too, but maybe, mm-hmm. you know, given how new, like so much of their stuff is that 2024 might not be, uh, might not be feasible. Feasible is not the word might, you know, is, I guess is riskier than mm-hmm. Blue Origins or Dynetics uh, getting there. And then the management rating, the management is very good for both Blue Origin and Dynetics and then acceptable for SpaceX. Uh, I don't know how they qualify that one. Um, I don't remember reading much about the management aspect of this. My interpretation is that essentially they're, I know some people don't like the word old space, but they're they're kind of old space that like, you know, are working in collaborative partnerships with other companies that have experience. And so that's the fact that SpaceX is doing it on their own and that, yeah, they've got a lot of experience flying Falcon 9s and a few Falcon Heavies, but as far as Starship goes, um, I don't know. There's not much there yet other than still kind of testing. But And also, I think they pointed out that um, the fact that their commercial crew and Falcon Heavy development both slipped significantly, but mm-hmm. I gotta imagine if you look at these other companies, they must have slipped on some of their things oh, that yeah. they proposed, you know? <laughs> so I was kind of surprised, but... That kind of brings us to, let's talk about Blue Origin first, because I'm kind of surprised about a couple things. Because, yes, it is it is true that SpaceX has had some slip-ups, but Blue Origin has some issues as well. And the main thing that kind of jumped out at me was that in their proposal, they plan to launch their lander on both a... Vulcan and a new Glenn. Now, the new Glenn rocket has never launched at all. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, I mean, at least SpaceX has, you know, a working prototype ish type of a star hop or something, but they don't have anything. So how is that not a bigger risk? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. Well, for, <laughs> from what I understand, they can. Oh, I get. Do they do they need both because they've got? I don't know if they need got, both, but they plan on launching on both. It, it mm. says. Um, but if, if they needed to fall back to just flying on Vulcan, they could do that, isn't that? Is that correct? Yeah, that's what I would assume. Yeah. So, so, so I think that's the key: is that they have multiple ways to get to orbit, and not only that, but they could even fly the entire thing on a single SLS, which. Mm-hmm. 
you know, right. probably sounds pretty, pretty good, even though we don't have, you know, SLSs to spare right now, which is really weird considering we didn't have missions to spare previously. And now we're, <laughs> now we've got more missions than, than SLSs in a sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I guess it would have to be a Vulcan realistically, which is also a rocket that, you know, hasn't actually flown yet. So actually, I don't know, it seems kind of risky, you know, the Blue Origin one. So I'm kind of surprised. Well, I mean, their path to orbit might be a little risky, but they have multiple backups. Whereas SpaceX is only relying on a single launcher that is still in development instead of, I guess, three launchers that are in development. <laughs> well, I guess it just goes to show how much of a bias I had because I still expect SpaceX, you know, to come through on just that one, whereas these other three, I'm sure eventually will, but not necessarily in time. And I think that SpaceX can probably meet that timetable. So Sam in the chat says, I'd be very surprised if Starship Super Heavy, the, if the Starship Super Heavy stack is ready anytime close to New Glenn. Um, we kind of had a little bit of conversation off the mic here, but I, I think they've got some interesting points here. So um, Starship is at production technology, kind of the the demo stage, right? So they're they're still figuring out how to weld the tanks. And and this week we saw their first cryo test that actually didn't result in uh popping the tanks. And so uh while that's you know a little iffy, um New Glenn is using much more proven techniques. You know, stir friction welding's been around forever as opposed to welding outdoors. Um and not only that, but Blue Origin has a lot of experience with it and they've you know, they're basically scaling up a, a previous vehicle, whereas SpaceX is kind of starting from scratch in a way. So yeah, it's, it's tough because we don't get to see much of what Blue Origin is doing behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think that sounds like a pretty, a pretty reasonable assessment. Oh, actually, Sam says that we're seeing New Glenn tanks and hardware. Okay. I haven't um, seen any of those. I was about to ask because I don't know what we do know about how far along New Glenn is. Yeah. They're just, they're just so secretive. I mean, it's possible. And I keep waiting for the day when, you know, they just like suddenly unveil a whole rocket and it's like, Oh my God, they're going to launch it, you know, but that hasn't happened yet. So, <laughs> um, we kind of don't know. I mean, it's possible that New Glenn will be launched to orbit much further in advance of super heavy or anything. And remember, we even talked about their uh, their fairing a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I, I had totally seen some of this stuff and then like just the stuff that's on Twitter and <laughs> blanked on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so they are moving very slow and steady. But the question remains then if and I almost would rather say when they have a fairly substantial anomaly during their first launch, how long before they can reset and try again? Because, you know, that's that's almost bound to happen. I mean, there's going to be something that needs to be fixed. And, you know, because they're so slow and methodical, um, how long before they can try again? Because, I mean, that's something that SpaceX is pretty good at. They'll blow up a rocket and try the next day just about. But isn't that the, uh, that's that's the different approach, right? That Blue yeah, Origin's yeah. got, which is, you know, they do so much of this testing ahead of time that they won't. Mm-hmm. I like they'll have a, such a good theoretical knowledge that they can really, really reduce the risk of a uh, a significant anomaly. Yeah, but I feel like in rocketry, there's mm -hmm. there's like ju there's just no substitute for actually doing it. You know, like you're never going to be able to account for everything. You can try, but they have to just launch it. Mm -hmm. So at least do that, and they've never put anything into orbit yet. So I get very suspicious. So yeah, so Blue Origins, um, right with their large collaboration not only does that kind of give them the flexibility that we've been talking about for multiple paths to orbit but uh specifically uh northrop grumman is in charge of the uh, transfer element which will be uh based on cygnus and so that'll basically take 
the uh, lander from either Gateway or more likely just a direct uh, docking to Orion itself. It can dock to either. And that'll take it down into a uh, uh, an orbit to get to the surface of the moon. And then, uh, like we saw at IEC, Blue Origin's got their descent element, uh, which, you know, there's a lot of pictures, right? That's that's a mock-up that you know, is out there and visible. So thank you, Jeff Bezos, for letting us see that. And, um, right, that's got uh, two B7s that'll get you down to the surface. And then uh, Lockheed Martin is in charge of the uh, the ascent vehicle to then get back up to, uh, you know, either Orion or uh, Gateway. And the ascent element can be refueled and reused uh, a bunch of times, which is pretty cool. And so you'd have to get a new uh, transfer to set element e- each time. Mm-hmm. So that's the level of kind of reusability here as compared to a SpaceX fully reusable, even though it won't return to Earth. But anyway, yeah, so... So that's kind of how, you know, what how this partnership with uh, Northrop and uh, Lockheed are working out. And then uh, uh, Draper is uh, doing all kind of like the avionics, I believe, which is their bread and butter. So they plan to test that descent stage in 2023. So that's just a descent stage, obviously, with nothing else on top of it. Maybe I, I guess they would there would probably be some kind of a mass simulator, but just that descent stage. So with mm-hmm. if they do that, I assume that that test will be carried out on either a New Glenn or a Vulcan. Well, um, in that case, so we're so we can expect to see one of those ready by then, yeah. unless there's a different launch vehicle for that. <laughs> one thing that they were kind of dinged for is that they have a you have the notes here uh, a novel propulsion system is a weakness. Their novel propulsion system is uh, like you said the BE sevens, right? So I don't know quite what's so weak about that besides that you know these are not like you know well proven engines, but they don't seem too particularly complex. I don't think that they are at least, but I don't recall too much about them. But they don't seem like you know big giant it, complex engines. Yeah, no, I mean I guess yeah, it just really is. It's 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 a you know it's a brand new propulsion system, and so you know they have what they call a lot of uh, uh, low uh, technology technology readiness levels systems yeah. so trl right and so um they're confident in the sort of source selection statement they're they're confident that blue origin you know will put in the work that they need and so that's why they um don't really ding them for this weakness so much they kind of note it but then they say that you know blue origin's proposal contains a lot of mitigating aspects and so this weakness doesn't outweigh all the other stuff and so that's why mm-hmm. you know they kind of made it to this round and so just a refresher the be7 is a dual expander cycle engine. Each engine is capable of 10,000 pounds of thrust. So I, I think it's a Methalox engine, is it? Or no, is it hydrogen? Actually, no, I think it's a Hydrolux ah, engine. It is. Yeah, it's Hydrolux. Yeah. Let's move on to the next proposal, which is Dynetics. So this one is a little bit more reusable. In fact, um, uh, it's almost completely... It, it, I mean, I would say it's almost completely reusable except for a couple of tanks. So it's a pretty novel yeah. idea. And I have to say, I don't know of any other, I can't think of any other example in aerospace of something that sheds hardware on its descent as opposed to its climb to orbit. Uh, maybe, maybe, I mean, you think of Mars, Mars craft uh, landers and rovers count? <laughs> I mean, they, they shed well, some hardware true. on yeah. the way down. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You're right. Nothing okay. quite <laughs> like this big, though. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. But dropping tanks is just like, I don't know, that's just such an interesting idea. Yeah, so this is a two-stage lander that might use what are called vortex engines, which I don't know much about them. I believe that they use some kind of a green propellant, which makes it sound like that, you know, they're sort of a substitute for hydrazine or something. Um, but that's about as much as I could find on them. And that they're probably also being used in the Dream Chaser as well. So not a whole lot there, but that's something that I had seen mentioned in Scott Manley's video that they're probably using the vortex engines or at least that they might be, but we don't know. Right. And I, and I forget if we had mentioned, but right. Yeah. Sierra Nevada is sort of a subcontractor on this, uh, this proposal yeah. as well. So. so this would launch on a Vulcan. It too is capable of docking with Gateway or the Orion spacecraft. And um, what's interesting about this proposal is that it is capable of aborting at any point along the descent. I wonder why that is and these other proposals can't because I would think that maybe, you know, like Starship could possibly. So so here's here's the thing about abort is from a Delta V perspective, you're only getting farther and farther down the well as you get closer to landing. So aborting on the way down to landing is is really easy. I mean, from a from a delta v perspective, from a configuration and an operations perspective, it gets a little more difficult, but it shouldn't be that big of a deal. So I'm really surprised that they are specifically citing um Dynetics as being able to do that as a as a positive that is theirs alone because I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case. Now, SpaceX might be a little interesting. We'll get more into their system in a in a sec, mm-hmm. but they use different uh different engines for the final touchdown than the bulk mm-hmm. of the descent and presumably the ascent as well. And so for them, being able to light up their raptors it, at a moment's notice might be a bit tough, but I mean I can't imagine that they're doing thrust to weight ratio of less than one with their with their alternate engines. Um, so in theory, you could throttle those engines up and and get yourself back up. You know, slow your descent and and return to orbit. So I I wonder if this is all about about rendezvous. And if you do an abort during the landing, you're not necessarily going to have the orbital dynamics to get back to where you need to. Um, although the fact that all these landers are supposed to be able to get to the gateway from the gateway to the surface and then back to the gateway makes me think that they certainly i think it'd be a a pretty far stretch to say they don't have the capability Mm -hmm. uh to to handle those dynamics um i don't know this seems like a really weird point to to call out in specific for any one of the landers yeah and scanning over the source selection statement i mean not only is the word abort not there but even just kind of looking briefly at all the different strengths that were listed for Dynetics. I didn't see anything about sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, that capability. You know, it's it's NASA spaceflight, and this was written by um, Thomas Berghardt. So, like, you know, it's it's a, a well-researched, uh, very intelligent news source, but I, I just wonder, I wonder where this came from, because it, it seems at odds with the way that we know the world works. I'm sure it has to have come from somewhere because he wouldn't just put that in there, you know, like randomly, like, you know, it's a very specific point. So there have to be some sort of source that says that, you know, they have a capability um, and that maybe the others don't. The one thing I'll say, I, I don't know about SpaceX, but as far as how this compares to the Blue Origin lander, I can kind of see it because the Blue Origin lander has to separate in order to ascend back to orbit, or at least like at a certain point it does, because then it just has that extra mass. But this thing does not have any extra mass except for the fuel tanks, which, you know, it can shed once those tanks are empty. So it seems like, you know, it's kind of like already a single stage to orbit type of a vehicle, which makes it seem 
more likely to be able to abort at any point, but the Blue Origin lander, not as much because that's more complex than that, you know. They just can't get close to landing and then put the whole thing back into orbit because they would have to get rid of that first descent stage, which I don't know how easy that would be able to do during, you know, the landing itself. So I can totally see how that can't just come close to landing, but then take back off again. I don't think it works that way. Um, I'm I'm really excited to see more of the Dyn- Dynetics uh, human landing system. It it looks weird and wonderful in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do we actually talk about what it looks like? Yeah, we we should do that. Think about anything that you built in Kerbal Space Program and then render it <laughs> in uh, in more professional <laughs> CG. And 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 one thing to note too is that they really did like in the proposal how. Um, low the crew cabin is to the base of the lander. So there's uh, a lot less risk of falls or any kind of issue with getting either, you know, the crew or any cargo to the surface. Yeah. And in that aspect, it's it's the polar opposite of SpaceX's Starship. But to, to kind of describe how this works, imagine uh, a roughly cylindrical crew capsule where the cylinder is on its belly. And then on each side, you have, it's, it just looks like something I built in Kerbal, for real. <laughs> um, and then, then on either side of that, you have fuel tanks with engine pods slung below them. Um, so the whole vehicle has got a, a roughly horizontal uh, kind of configuration. So almost, um, I would say a head and shoulders, but kind of, you know, the, the head is even with the shoulders. Um, so maybe, oh, you know what it is? It's, uh, it's, um, Princess Leia buns on the side of a head. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I can't yeah, not see that now. <laughs> yeah. So instead of having, um, a single engine or a single cluster of engines centered in the center of mass directly underneath the crew capsule, they're, they're, they're split. So there's one on either side. And then to make this thing a little goofier, um, you have two, <laughs> Uh, scroll type solar panels. So something that looks a lot like what we see on the ISS. I mean, obviously with a lot more structure, but with those, those kind of rollout panels, those roll out from the top as if they're bunny ears. Uh, but, but this configuration, like you said, gets, gets the, the capsule down to a single ladder distance away from the surface, mm-hmm. um, with, with the, the belly. So, you know, it's, it's almost like a flying, it's almost like driving a small car where you kind of feel like your feet are scraping on the road as opposed <laughs> to driving a tall truck where, you know, you've got a lot of metal underneath you. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a cool idea because it does, you know, drop those tanks, which is something that I, you know, would have never thought of. Boy, that thing is, that's really a wide vehicle. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I, look, this is kind of what I uh, expected when I saw that thing. It, it rides sideways in the fairing with, you know, the left side up and the right side down, as it were. Well, and b- before we move on from Dynetics, it's worth pointing out that they got the best ratings in the source selection document. So even though we're talking about a kind of a, you know, relatively unusual configuration, um, they, they're bringing a lot of punch to the table. So don't expect mm-hmm. them to just disappear um, as if they were, um, you know, lower down on the list and weird. They're higher yeah. up on the list and weird. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> it's the best combo. <laughs> In fact, I would say that my money would be on them. I would say if NASA is going to pick just one lander and if it's being fair, just, and there's no taxes involved. Yeah. Like politics. Yeah. That's a better way of putting it. Then I think that they would be selected. But if there's two, my prediction, then if they pick two landers, it would be them plus SpaceX. Um, but I honestly don't know if the origin has a shot. I, I think I have a lot of 
confidence in SpaceX getting to the moon. But what I don't have a lot of confidence is SpaceX getting to the moon being paid by NASA to do it. And the fact that Blue Origins or, you know, the national team has so many familiar names. I mean, Dynetics does as well, but, you know, Blue Origins is much more the, the good old boys, hmm. um, like the, the old space crowd. And to boot, their vehicle has a lot of design similarities to Apollo. So it's very familiar and comfortable. Um, and so for me, I really expect that lander to be a, a big contender. Mm -hmm. um, just just due to the the comfortableness of it, but mm -hmm. looking at the ratings, it looks like Dynetics might be um, pushing forward. And then, you know, who who knows SpaceX? You know, like NASA has mm -hmm. had such a I, I don't know if you'd call it a love hate relationship, more of a more of a distrust love relationship, where <laughs> you know we go from uh, seeing from seeing NASA. Uh, really kind of discount them as a launch provider. And then they start proving themselves and providing uh, low cost access to space, relatively low cost access to space and getting to the point where NASA is okay with them reflying hardware over and over um, both, you know, Falcon nines and dragons. Like that's, that's really cool. And so who, who knows what that's going to look like with a brand new vehicle? Do we get reset back to square one? Probably because that's the way that NASA has been treating SpaceX. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's unfair to say is, you know, they kind of expect more out of them because their hardware changes so often. Um, and so, you know, it, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. But yeah, let's, I'll let, I'll hand it back to you, David. Why don't you go ahead and talk about Starship mm -hmm. to the Moon? Yeah. So this is pretty much just a Starship that lands on the Moon, just uh, like we said. But there are some important changes, which are pretty cool. Uh, the first thing that uh, we have in the notes here that I see that you put, Dennis, was that um, if uh, the social media renders are to be believed, this is not a normal Starship. This is, you know, one that's, uh, I guess you could say, lunar optimized. The optimization requires physical like non-negligible hardware changes right. that are non-negligible <laughs> superficially <Yeah>. apparent <laughs> so but yeah and then one big difference here with this well the first one is that you know obviously starship is much bigger than these other two landers uh, quite a bit in fact like oh, yeah. which i think makes it really cool just looking at that like you could put a building on the moon um mm -hmm. that's kind of mm -hmm. what starship is yeah delta v shared some comparisons of starship next to the other uh, candidate landers and it's just <laughs> it's not a small difference <laughs> nope. it's huge and um it doesn't have any aerodynamic panels which means that most likely this thing would have to remain in orbit you know like of either earth or the moon or somewhere but it can't you know come back to mm -hmm. earth and that's probably because the way that this works is it, it actually takes two starships because you actually need a tanker to refuel the one that's going to be landing on the moon because you know you need that fuel it's a very big vehicle and that's something that was you know proposed way back when we first saw the unveiling of Starship back when it was called the Mars Colonial Transport or whatever it was mm -hmm. called, um, yeah. you know, that you have these two vehicles that have to mate somehow in orbit. I don't know how they're doing it now. And then you do a fuel transfer, then it leaves for the moon. So that's an important difference is that you would have to actually do two launches for every one that you would do. Well, that's not necessarily true, actually, because even with the Blue, Blue Origin Origins, vehicle, yeah. yeah, you have three separate components. So actually, yeah, so this might actually still be. Right. But let's let's be clear. We've never done propellant transfer in orbit. Oh, well, I mean, we've done we've done a couple of little experiments on ISS, but th this is uh, on a totally different scale. So, while Starship looks really pretty and sleek, 
don't mistake it for being simpler. So Ben Howard in the chat says, uh, ISS and Salyut have done propellant transfer for decades. Yes. The difference is that this is cryogenic fuels, which we've never done. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, that, that is a, a good distinction to make. Now, Ben also points out that the Russians, with their refueling ISS and Salyut, they're using pressurized membrane transfer systems, whereas Starship is going to be open, ullage, you know, tanks where you pressurize the tanks and the ullage gas and the propellant kind of float around together. Um, so since they're not using a membrane to keep all the fluid or all the, all the propellant in one place, and I don't believe you can do uh, membranes with cryogenic materials. I mean, there, there may be a membrane out there that'll do it, but, um, mm. and it would also be difficult with tanks this huge. Um, but that's, that's why they're using their header tank system is, is to hopefully be able to drive that propellant transfer. But I mean, that, that's a huge unknown. It, it's, it's doable. Um, there, there are plenty of good ways to do it, but it's, it's something that we haven't ever gotten close. So. Yeah. Um, important to note that Starship looks really sleek and simple and beautiful, but it's got some really complex, low readiness level technologies on board. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it looks simple. I don't think anyone thinks it looks simple. I mean, it looks sleek for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I tend to equate sleek and simple in my head. When something looks um, really pretty, I go, oh, that's easy. Yeah. Uh, even though that's uh, a, a very poor assumption to make. I mean, because it seems like the most technically challenging of all of them, just considering, you know, the sheer size of it. Plus, like we were discussing it, like it has to, you know, transfer fuel. And so it, you know, does require an extra launch. But again, maybe not an extra one compared to like Blue Origin, which might require right. three launches. So actually one less, really. Um, but it does have to transfer fuel. So that's no small mm -hmm. thing. And and even though it requires two launches, those launches use very, very similar vehicles, whereas um, launching on two separate vehicles, two, two separate launch vehicles with two separate payloads, mm -hmm. you know, that's, you know, mm -hmm. N or, or X to the N, uh, new interfaces to deal with, mm -hmm. um, pot mm -hmm. potentially, you know, you, you can get out of hand really quickly if you need to be able to launch on multiple different vehicles. So, um, that, that does help a little bit. Yeah. So one big difference is the thrusters that will actually be landing this thing because you can't use, like, you can't use Raptor engines to land on the moon or you could, but that's going to really scorch the surface and kick up a lot of dust and rock and God knows what else. So, um, how do you mm -hmm. land on the moon with a vehicle that large? You have to have, you know, some other means of, um, uh, creating propulsive thrusts that are not on the very bottom of the vehicle, but much further up. And so that's what they have. And so they have what might be super Dracos that are about like more than halfway up the length of the lander, but I don't know what they are exactly. Yeah, they're up there and we don't know if they're Dracos or super Dracos, but it looks like they're clustered in groups of three and it looks like there are four of those clusters. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, Starship is heavy, but holy cow. Oh, you know, actually, no, I'm looking at the angles. I think it's 120 degrees. So three, three clusters of three engines. And, and let me correct myself real quick. Uh, ben Howard is saying, uh, that it's, it's not just two launches. It's multiple, multiple tanker launches to refuel before taking Starship to the moon. Oh, okay. Multiple. So it's not just two. It, it is multiple, but you know, they're, they're all the same thing. It's just the same mission over and over and over and a fully reusable mission. So it shouldn't be too terribly expensive. This really is the future. <laughs> yeah. Ben calls these uh, the armpit slash Goddard landing rockets. I like the <laughs> armpit rockets. And also, um, yeah, so there's an interesting thing here that Ben points out. If you look at the image uh, or the render with those armpit rockets firing, um, if you look at the engines, 
you can see that there are multiple engines glowing red there. This has got the configuration where you have um, three atmospheric engines clustered in the center, and then it, it looks like it's three vacuum engines on the outside. And here, this is a vacuum engine and one of the atmospheric engines. And as far as we know, the vacuum engines are, are still not going to be able to gimbal because their bells are so huge. So um, you're going to have to pick a vacuum engine for, or you could you could land just on the atmospheric engines because uh, you'd be able to get the gimbling, but you'll get poor efficiency. So you have to pick a vacuum engine. And then if you add in a sea level engine or atmospheric engine, you get gimbling as well. So you kind of split the benefits of those two. So that's a really interesting possibility to do the bulk of your braking burn with, with mixed engines. And mm -hmm. then on top of it to land with, you know, potentially a novel engine. I mean, it's probably, it's probably a bunch of super Dracos, but you know, to land on a third engine is mm -hmm. yeah. pretty crazy. Can I also mention something now, like looking at these renders again, uh, that I think is really interesting and kind of ties back to Dynetics and why um, they got good marks for being so close to the surface is Blue Origins, right? They've got that uh, Davit system, right? Kind of mm -hmm. like a crane looking thing. And so you got to mm -hmm. basically come down from the top of the vehicle. SpaceX, you got to come down from like, you know, a three story building or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. I, I had forgotten about them using that kind of also Davit crane system yeah, as well. Exactly. So polar opposite of, uh, of Dynetics. So th this is where we start running into some interesting things out of SpaceX, right? We, we had heard about that, or, you know, they've talked a long time about wanting Starship to be able to land anywhere. You know, they designed it to be able to put a hundred tons on Mars and a hundred tons on the moon. And then, you know, they built it with enough Delta V to be able to get it out into the outer solar system. And, and that's really cool. But here we're beginning to see why uh, having a single vehicle that can do all these things feels a little odd, right? To, mm -hmm. to see the two, uh, the two other proposals um, be very slim and tiny and, and just, you know, they look much more NASA adjacent. Mm -hmm. And then to look over and see uh, Starship, you know, Starship Moon, the, the moon variant of the Starship. Sitting on the moon, it's it's a little bizarre. Like when you, when you're thinking about this in terms of oh, we're doing a second Apollo, you know, quote, quote unquote. I mean, like hmm. uh, hopefully that's not what we're doing, but you know, we're doing something on the scale of Apollo right now, and to have a vehicle that can do single stage landing and ascent and then be reused, that's that's really cool. But it it looks so out of place with the other vehicles, and it's it's really interesting to see them actually being considered a contender. And that's that's really cool, and it's it's really interesting. I think just from a, a visceral standpoint to see how how vastly different their their whole landing system is. And, and yeah, Ben points out uh, their proposal comes in, you know, pretty affordable, you know, considering. Um, and then a hundred tons to the surface is insane. I mean, that's mm. that's a huge, huge. I mean, it's it's overkill practically for. <laughs> Uh, for a NASA style mission, it's very, very appropriate for establishing a, a longer, a longer term presence. So yeah, they said their uh, RCS system was was concerning, very complex compared to other sort of ones. The more, is that because it's a non traditional one? Is that the one where they're trying to use uh, methane for the RCS system? 
Oh, I vaguely Wait, remember. Like you said that it triggered a memory. So yeah, maybe those aren't dr- super Dracos. Maybe those are their like mini raptors. They're fast fire raptors. Methox RCS thrusters. Yeah. Boy, and it's not methalox. It's methox. So methox. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, gaseous oxygen, but it, you know, if the tanks are hydrogenously pressurized, then that that works out pretty well because you got plenty of the plenty of the gaseous stuff sitting around, right? It's got to be what dings them the fact that there are CSs. So, I mean, and, and you know, this is this is the theme that you were bringing up. It's like you know, this is really innovative, kind of next generation sort of stuff, and they're doing it kind of all at once. So they're really swinging for the fences, and so if they pull that mm-hmm. off, it's going to be amazing. But like, it really, is just so ambitious yeah that's the thing is it's like this is not a moon mission this is you know a a much more capable spacecraft that's being applied to i mean a a testing ground but like an easier mission than it was intended for and that's that's weird no every every other lander in this is all you know what what's the word um bespoke bespoke (laughs) um (laughs) where yeah so it's really interesting to see those total design philosophy differences like on a philosophy level they're they're hugely different vehicles and then before we get away from spaceship because we're going to stay on the spacex topic for for the next news item but before we get away from spaceship elon tweeted this week um that they are starting design on super heavy uh it's going to have 31 engines instead of the 37 that we expected it won't have any big fins and the legs are going to look a lot like the starships um, the thrust dome is a super hard part. Raptor sea level thrust starts at 200 tons, but upgrades are in the works to get up to 250. They're about a month away from testing the vacuum Raptor. And then Elon got distracted by something else and stopped flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So let's uh, move on to the other SpaceX topic, a crew dragon, prepping for crew dragon. Um, yeah. So that's still scheduled for May 27th. That's, that's coming up. Really Less quick. than three weeks or no, a little more than three weeks. <laughs> So, like, the final checks and tests that have been happening, uh, uh, there was a Mark III parachute test just a few days ago, really. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, they're still doing those. Or I, I have to imagine that's the last one, I hope. I don't know. They reviewed that uh, Falcon 9 that had an engine out anomaly on the first stage, right? You remember when that happened? And that one had flown, like, mm-hmm. like four or five times or something like that. But, you know, they still wanted to test it, check out what was happening there. And... um you guys remember what the uh, cause of that was? Yeah, it was isopropyl. It was like right, a right, cleaning right. fluid that they didn't completely wash out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's not going to be, you know, shouldn't be an issue for, you know, uh, Demo 2. Then they've got some flight test readiness reviews uh, on May 8th at SpaceX and on May 11th with NASA. And then NASA is given a flight readiness review on the 20th, which is one week before launch. And that's also when they're going to sort of kick off. It sounds like a week of like events and, you know, different things. You know, I'm sure NASA TV will be having all sorts of stuff going on to kind of uh, get ready and get excited about sending uh, people to the station, uh, launching people from U.S. soil for the first time in nine years. And there was one bit of uh, news as well. It's just like, like, what exactly is this mission going to be? Right, it's supposed to be a short little flight. Get there. I mean, you know, an end-to-end test flight. Right, this still isn't the first proper crew mission. This isn't crew one. This is their the first mission to carry crew, but it's still supposed to be a demo mission. But at the end of the day, it sounds like it will be kind of just a proper crew flight because when they get to station, right now, Chris Cassidy's up there with uh, two cosmonauts, Anatoly Ivanishin and Ivan Wagner. So the idea is that they want to get more people up there to support 
Chris. And so Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley are, of course, the two with all their awesome uh, pictures of them wearing the SpaceX suits. And uh, yeah, and so the idea is that the length of the mission, it's not settled yet, but some uh, uh, during a press conference, somebody was saying that it'll be at least a month at station, but no more than 119 days because that's when the solar panels would degrade to the point that they, you know, they'd want to get mm-hmm. get back by then. It might even include an EVA, you know. I mean, like that's you know a big window there, and so um, yeah, there's going to be proper station astronauts as far as I'm concerned, you know. Thinking <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, Hurley might help out with uh, installing some new batteries that'll be showing up on an H2, an HTV. So Ben, what's the story with the flag? Yeah, so this is pretty cool. The last shuttle to go to ISS left a, an American flag at the station. And the idea was that the first the, the first crew vehicle to launch from American soil would go and retrieve that flag. And what's really cool is Eric Berger this week retweeted a SpaceX tweet from 2011 that said, SpaceX commencing flag capturing sequence, <laughs> um, which was them, uh, Berger called it, calling their shot. And so um, Berger, I, I don't know why he said this, but he said SpaceX said they were doing it and they did it. Well, they haven't done it yet. So, so, <laughs> so we need to scale back a little bit, but hopefully in two weeks they will have secured their claim to the flag and then X amount of time after that, they will be bringing it home. And that's quite a trophy. That's that's really darn cool. Yeah, that's a flag for a for a for a museum right there. Or maybe SpaceX gets to keep it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it winds up. Okay, let's do four shorts and sweets this week. What's our first one, Dennis? First up, UAE Mars mission arrives at launch site. Al-Amal, also known as Hope in English, has been shipped to Tanegashima Space Center for final checkouts before its July launch to the Red Planet. The Mars Orbiter was built in Colorado by Emirati engineers as well as American partners. After testing, Al-Amal Hope was shipped to Mohammed bin Rashid's Space Center for final tests and now has arrived at its launch site in Japan. The spacecraft will be operated by the UAE Space Agency and features a high-resolution camera and UV and infrared spectrometers. Next, Starlink Sun Visor testing to begin. SpaceX is preparing to test its experimental visor sat with the next Starlink launch in an effort to mitigate the brightness of Starlink satellites and their interference with ground-based optical astronomy. Changing tack from their original DarkSat approach, which coded Starlink surfaces to make them less reflective, VisorSat is modeled on sun visors and a car windshield, flipping up to physically block sunlight from striking the satellite antennas. SpaceX will also try to adjust the orientation of the satellites to further reduce brightness, particularly during their transit to their final operational orbit. Next up, Omega is ready to go into production. Data from the Omega rocket's first and second stage test fires has been reviewed, and North Grumman is now ready to move on to production of hardware for its first launch in 2021. Due to the commonality of the first and second stage boosters, both cold and hot test conditions were carried out just once in total. Changes have been made to the first stage nozzle as a result of the anomaly during a test last May that resulted in the nozzle shattering. The remaining tasks before Omega's maiden flight include testing fairing separation, pressurization tests of liquid oxygen and hydrogen tanks, and testing the complete first stage at Plum Brook Station in Ohio. So, yep, very, very close. And fourthly, Rocket Lab tests at Wallops. The first Electron rocket to launch from Virginia's Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport on Wallops Island has arrived. Set to take place in the third quarter of this year, the maiden launch has a sole payload, 
STP-27RM, a microset as part of NASA's space test program. Rocket Lab built Launch Complex 2, as it's named, all in 2019 at a record-setting pace for launch pads. Mechanical and electrical tests have taken place, and now Rocket Lab is working on getting their autonomous flight termination software certified by NASA before the launch. So no questions, comments, or corrections. So just moving right on to uh, this week in spaceflight history. One winner, again, the Greek, killing it lately. Yeah. So, uh, so the clue last week was don't take your jacket off too early. And I didn't know what that was about, but he did. Yeah, so what is that about? All right. This week in spaceflight history is the 8th of May, 1962. It was the first launch of Atlas Centaur, which unfortunately ended in an explosion. So um, Atlas Centaur 1, AC-1, arrived and was erected on the launch pad in October of 1961. October to May. So... There there were a lot of delays. Anyway, um, the pad that it was launched off of was LC-36A, which is now owned by Blue Origin. And uh, the, the delays were multitudinous. Um, most notably, <laughs> liquid hydrogen leaked through the common bulkhead into the fuel tank. I, mm. I have no idea uh, what caused that leak or how it was fixed, but yikes, that's, that's not great, guys. Um, so, uh, you know, after what? is that six or seven months worth of delays. Um, they finally get around to the launch in May of 1962. So let's talk a little bit more about this vehicle. Um, this was an Atlas LF-3B with a Centaur A on top of it. As far as I know, this was the only time a Centaur A was ever launched. And I believe the Centaur B, C... Maybe it was just the B and C only ever did one launch as well. Um, so this was uh, serial numbers. I, I uh, have them in here because originally I had confused the model numbers with the serial numbers. So I just left them in here. <laughs> so this Atlas was Atlas 104D and the Centaur was Centaur F1. So um, 53 seconds into the launch, uh, the vehicle disappears into a big white cloud that then turns into a big glowing red cloud <laughs> as it as uh, an explosion happens and there, there's a, a good youtube video in the links the youtube video is just slow motion footage uh from the pad of, of liftoff and then there will also be a link to a tweet by rocket rundown and that's an actual uh tracking video of of the actual the actual failure so you know big white clouds uh first off it looked a lot like crs7 to me but then it explodes into flames but hmm. um big white clouds are are really bad for giving you a clear view of what's happening so at first they weren't sure what happened and that actually was uh, a bigger deal than it might seem at first blush. This is 1962, and uh, Scott Carpenter was scheduled to fly on the fourth crewed Mercury flight just days after this launch. And of course, what was he flying on? He was flying on another Atlas. And so the first, uh, the first impression is, oh dang, we the Atlas was uh, the one under power, so it's likely to be an Atlas failure. If this is an Atlas failure, then we're about to put a person on top of one. We need to make sure that that's not going to be a big deal. Um, and yes, I, I have to take a little bit of a step back. Yes, this flight was an Atlas LF-3C and Mercury flew on top of LF-3Bs. Um, so it's a, it's a different vehicle, but they're both derived from the Atlas D. Um, they share a lot of heritage. Um, so yeah, I know they're different vehicles, but you know, it's, it's still a concern here. So 53 seconds in, we get this failure. 
what actually happened. Before we can talk about the actual failure, we have to talk about Centaur a little bit. Um, Centaur flies with liquid hydrogen, and as you might know off the top of your head, if you're real darn smart, uh, liquid hydrogen is very cold, and the air that the vehicle flies through is very good at thermal exchange, uh, so you have to add insulation. And of course, insulation is heavy, so the Centaur had this really cool idea. Well, if insulation is so heavy, uh, but we only need it while we're in atmosphere. Why don't we ditch it on the way up and uh, get ourselves a little, uh, a little weight reduction, a little uh, delta V increase, and therefore a payload increase? So they designed detachable insulation panels, and um, I have a video of this that I found. I don't have it in the show notes, but I'm going to put a note here. Uh, hopefully it'll be in the show notes when the show gets published. <laughs> but um, the insulation panels were uh, designed in four chunks. And they would all deploy outward away from the vehicle. And there, there were successful panel deployments, but not on this flight. <laughs> so, so the panels were intended to be jettisoned at around 80 kilometers, which would be 50 seconds after, after Biko, um, the booster cutoff. Um, now remember that's, that's not the same as Miko main engine cutoff, um, because Atlas, um, had two booster engines, a single sustainer engine in the middle, and then also vernier engines on the sides uh, of the vehicle for steering. So we have three engine out events just for the Atlas first stage. That's Biko, Seco, and Vico, because mm -hmm. the uh, vernier engines actually stay lit after the sustainer engine cuts off. So the panels were intended to deploy... 15 minutes after Biko had happened, so while we were on the sustainer engine. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. They actually tore off early, actually before the booster engines cut off. They tore off of the vehicle just due to aerodynamic forces. Now, they didn't generate debris that then caused an explosion. They tore off, but, you know, it was a relatively successful, uh, you know, unintended deployment uh, or unintended jettison. And it actually wasn't a surprise that they came off early. They had been considered a likely failure point during the design of Centaur. Um, however, remember those panels were there to keep the liquid hydrogen cold. So they come off, the liquid hydrogen starts overheating or, or starts heating up quicker than normal. And so the vehicle starts venting pressure. But unfortunately, the hydrogen was actually boiling off faster than, than the vents uh, could could get rid of pressure. So it actually experienced an overpressure event and just popped open. Probably, you know, probably split along a, a seam, like a like a bulkhead seam, because they, they have a lot of area that they cover, but also might have been a, a filler or a vent port seam. Uh, I, I wasn't able to figure it out. Now, after that rupture, uh, things aren't going to go well, right? You, you know you're not going to space today. However, it's not super clear to me whether it was debris from that uh, from that overpressure event that caused the Atlas to then fail, or if the giant cloud of gaseous hydrogen uh, ignited in the hot air coming out of of the Atlas's engines. So you know the entire cloud ignites, and that was what caused the the vehicle to uh, to explode. I tend to think it was probably 
uh, debris or, you know, uneven aerodynamic forces as, you know, basically you have an upper stage that's uh, going to pieces. But different sources cite both of those causes. So I, I don't know which one it is. So after this, they were able to actually track down the issue, figure out exactly what happened. And we were able to launch, as we all know, many successful Mercury missions after that, you know, at, at least a handful of, <laughs> of Mercury missions, but they were all successful. So the, the aftermath of this, the, the political aftermath, was actually a little convoluted. And I actually wrote up a lot of notes until I realized I was really getting into the weeds talking about other vehicles. But basically, Von Braun said that he did not like Centaur. Um, he said that the management uh, of the Centaur program was, you know, was pretty weak. And he wanted to um, continue launching uh, uncrewed payloads for, you know, exploration missions on a Saturn 1 Agena combination. That never ended up happening. Uh, it was just too expensive. But, but that was, you know, in the, in the near aftermath, the proximate aftermath of the, of the failure and investigation. But by November, uh, President Kennedy actually wanted to cancel Centaur altogether. And as we know, that wasn't the case. Centaur is, uh, has heritage living on today. So that was the first flight of of Atlas Centaur. The second flight wasn't until um, November of 1963. So this happened at the beginning of 1962. Kennedy wanted to cancel it at the end of 1962. It was a full year after that that, uh, that the second flight actually took place. So they did a little bit of a redesign to to fix this issue. <laughs> Unfortunately, the redesign was to simply add bolts to keep those panels on. Um, they, as far as I understand, they didn't actually remove any of the jettison equipment. Uh, they just added bolts to keep the panels in place. And actually, while that was adding weight, it turns out that it was a necessary, a necessary fix because the second flight, the telemetry that was returned actually indicated that those panels would have fallen off as well, looking at the amount of vibration that it experienced. So yeah, kind of a hmm. kind of a funny thing to do, you know, if you if you have a year and a half uh, between flights to just add a couple bolts. I mean, they, uh, from what I understand there were other other redesign uh, other aspects of the vehicle that were redesigned between, you know, now and then as it were. But yeah, they they just, you know, duct tape those panels on, keep them keep them on. <laughs> We'll, we'll just take them all away. So there you go. That's this week in space flight history. Cool. So now the clue makes sense. All right. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Right. The clue was don't take your jacket off too early. So I, yeah. I, I think that's pretty straightforward at this point. Uh, what's the clue for next week? All right. So the clue is for next week in 1987. So we're stepping forward in time quite a bit here. Next week in 1987, the clue is pew, pew, boom. Cool clue. Uh, pew, pew, boom in 1987. All right. Well, if you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events then. No launches, uh, just one event. Yeah. So, so just one. Um, Cygnus NG13 is coming home this week. Um, so the coverage for the release is going to start at 11.45 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, May 11th. So that's right before our next show comes out. Uh, 11.45 a.m. Eastern Time is when the coverage begins. The release is scheduled for 12.10 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, that would be Tuesday morning uh, for U.S. folks. All right. And that is your 
only upcoming spaceflight event. That's it. All right, let's do over with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. A big thanks this week to our brand new flight director supporter, Riley Wilbur. Thanks, Riley. Awesome. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. You can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.